Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio is... Jason Rosenbaum. A sick Jason Rosenbaum and... Joe Manis, who is well. And our special guest this week... Sam Page. A doctor, actually, which is uh, good that we have him in so that he can help Yeah, but Jason. he's an anesthesiologist. <laughs> I don't think he's, he's very helpful Maybe to me Maybe we right can now. have Jason knocked out if he makes a lousy joke. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make very, very bad jokes today. Yes, and uh, Paige is the councilman in St. Yes. Louis County. Second district. He's one of the newest members of the council, but he has a, a long and storied political career here in St. Louis County. But first, tell us where your district is so our listeners have yeah, a sense. Yeah, your current district. Yes. Well, I represent uh, St. Louis County. Rough boundaries would be west of 170, um, all the way to the Missouri River with um, Olive Boulevard as a southern border. And then we go north um, all the way, um, edging in a little bit into Florissant. And, and so that's your current district. What were you doing before you, you took this job politically? Well, I had a brief career in the Missouri legislature, represented St. Louis County for three terms. In the House. In the House. And uh, in, in the St. Louis, before the St. Louis County Council in the House, and then also in, on the Creepcore City Council for two terms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, then, yeah, and then... Uh, Famously, he ran for uh, he was part of the Democratic ticket for statewide office in uh, 2008. Yeah, but before we kind of get into your political past, tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, where you're from, how you came to St. Louis, how you got into politics. Well, I, I grew up in a small town in southern Missouri called Van Buren. I went to UMKC, University of Missouri in Kansas City, and uh, met a young lady from St. Louis. Uh, Jennifer Harrell was her, ma- her maiden name, and Jennifer and I were in the same class in medical school. So I follow that rule. If you live where your wife's parents are, where your wife's family is, then you'll be a lot happier. <laughs> now, there's an interesting facet about, about your wife that I remember. Uh, wasn't she a cheerleader for the Kansas City Chiefs? Uh, Jennifer did cheer for the Chiefs during medical school, and um, uh, we all uh, enjoyed that. We got to go to the football games. Now, <laughs> does it, do you have any, like... Uh, cross loyalty between the Chiefs and, and the Rams, or are you pretty much a Rams fan by now? Well, we the Rams certainly, certainly grow on you, and we're, uh, we're all watching very closely about the options for, for a team here in St. Louis, but uh, you know, the Chiefs are a big part of our family, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Well, well, we may get into that a little bit later, but as you mentioned before, you were on the, the Creep Core City Council, um, and then you, I guess... Dis- he was in the State House, and then you we, you were in one of the most expensive. This is after the 2008 loss for lieutenant governor. You were in an extremely expensive race for the county council in uh, 2010. Correct? No, that's actually not true. State senate. Well, state senate. I meant. I'm sorry. I meant state senate. I have a collection of um, yard signs from the many different offices that I have run <laughs> for. But uh, city council, state representative, state senate, lieutenant governor, and now county council. Yeah. So just kind of backing into your political and legislative history. Um, I covered you when you were in the Missouri House, and one of the things that I noticed is even though it was a Republican-dominated body, I found that you were able to gain a little bit of a foothold in the care, in the area of healthcare policy, since you yes. were one of the few doctors. As we were talking about before, you were on the conference committee that created Mo HealthNet, which is Medi- the Medicaid program. Um, Tell me a bit about your experience in the Missouri House and how you were able to maybe obtain influence when, in retrospect, that might have seemed like a difficult thing to achieve in a Republican-dominated body. Well, I think the first step is to um, 
try not to be partisan and, and try not to be abrasive and don't worry too much about who gets credit for something. I think someone very wise told me early on in the process that you can accomplish just about anything if you don't worry about who's getting credit for it. So um, my strategy was always to approach a majority member with an idea and tell them I would work with them on it and I should be able to bring some uh, democratic support to their bill if it was something that was uh, a compromise and represented a consensus. Now you, you became quickly somewhat of an expert on health care policy partly because you are a physician and of course that did play a little bit of an issue in 2010 not in your race particularly but the Prop C which was the anti-Obamacare uh, proposal at the time and since then I'm interested in your assessment on what's happened in the legislature since you've left on health care and just in general and what you think might or may could be helpful or could not be helpful because they haven't done Medicaid expansion they haven't done some of the other things well we will eventually have Medicaid's expansion in Missouri it's it's costing the state uh, too much money to not expand Medicaid it's hurting our hospitals and I, I I'm confident that eventually we'll get this done um, unfortunately the the legislature and, and some of the some of the members have painted themselves in a corner because they've run against Obamacare, they've run against health care reform now for two elections and have a very difficult time coming to any sort of compromise on the issue. Now I wanted to ask you this question because I know you were running for lieutenant governor in 2008 and your attention was kind of divided, but I remember in 2008 there was a plan called Insure Missouri. I don't know if you remember that, but it was a program that was put forth by Matt Blunt to provide, I guess, uh, private health insurance for the uninsured. And what I remember from that situation very vividly was, you know, it was rolled out with a lot of hoopla. It was seen as a possible way forward after the Medicaid cuts of 2005. But what ended up killing it was this disagreement between one of your former colleagues, Rob Schaff of St. Joseph, who was in the House at the time, and the hospitals over a program called Certificate of Need, which licensed hospitals. Um, since that time, I've always thought that the, maybe the way forward on Medicaid expansion, since Dr. Schaff is in the Senate now, is maybe to, to compromise on that issue or maybe to bring that forward. Um, by when I, what I mean by that is maybe you know go to Dr. Schaff and say, we'll change certificate of need in exchange for Medicaid expansion. As a, as a doctor, do you think that's a logical way forward on this issue, or do you think that's just not going to happen given the hospital's opposition to that sort of thing? Well, I would have to go back to the hospital association and ask them just how important certificate of need is. I think there was a time when the delivery system was more fragmented, where um, uh, the population of patients was, was less predictable, that certificate of need was more important. I think now with accountable care organizations and um, moving towards a, a bundled payment system, I uh -huh. think the certificate of need is, is probably less important. I think that's a good idea. The re I, I bring this up occasionally. And I know it's kind of a wonky issue, but the reason I do it is, and while I'm not sure that Dr. Schaff would agree to that compromise, it just seems like the hospitals have taken such a hard line on that issue that it doesn't really seem logical that they would say, we're not going to do anything if you touch that program, essentially. So I know it's kind of a little bit of an aside, but as a doctor and someone who followed that issue, I thought I'd ask. How do you think the exchanges have worked in Missouri? Because I think in some ways they're kind of like a federal government version of Insure Missouri. I mean, it's in, a little different. In some ways, yeah. In some ways. Well, but that's really the point I was going to make. The concept of health care exchanges is really a Republican idea that was put into the Accountable Care Act 
with the hopes of earning Republican support, um, which in, at the end failed. But the um, concept of private insurance to um, um, that was subsidized uh, with, with premium subsidies by the government is an idea that's been around for a long time. So let's kind of – I don't want to dwell on your, your um, non-wins politically that much, but I do want to ask you about 2008 a little bit because that was uh, your race against Peter Kinder. You're the Democratic nominee for lieutenant governor. You raised quite a bit of money. You were seen as a very viable candidate, and you came up a little bit short. I think it was about one or two percentage points. And while Lieutenant Governor Kinder may be one of the most maligned Republican officials among Democrats, um, the fact of the matter is he's won every statewide race he's ever run in. He's defeated, you know, a former auditor, a former uh, secretary of state, a well-funded Republican senator, a well-funded Democratic rep. Why do you think he's so difficult to beat? And what message would you have to your fellow Democrats if he is the nominee again? You know, in 2016, because he says he's he of, says he's running. How to you know potentially outflank him essentially? Well, I think uh, Lieutenant Governor Kinder campaigns very hard. He campaigns um, consistently. He he works very hard to stay in contact with um, with people in Missouri, and um, he has a lot of relationship here in St. Louis that I think are helpful for him. He tends to outperform the Republican ticket in in St. Louis, and in my race. Um, uh, it's tough to beat an incumbent, and I was the only statewide candidate running against an incumbent. That's and correct. That, that name ID advantage is pretty dramatic. Um, I got pretty close on election day, but I was still probably 15 points behind a name ID going into that that um, weekend. And uh, it's hard to beat the fundraising uh, advantage of of an incumbent. I raised 2.7 million dollars, and and uh, I think he raised close to four. But um, in the end, the, the uh, political environment was in our favor. The governor had coattails. Uh, the president didn't win that, uh, that year at the top of the ticket. But still, it was, um, it was an interesting race. I learned a lot about politics, and I don't have any regrets. I think in the end, you do the best you can, and the political environment sometimes um, – uh, there are other things that are just outside of your control. So for Democrats who are thinking of running for lieutenant governor, I suggest you just listen to what he said yeah. because he has experience. So. Well, after after the, the 2010 uh, state Senate fight with um, Barbara Frazier, and then you were just focusing on being a physician and other things, now you're back. And a lot of people are, a lot of Democrats are very happy that you're back. Um, what are your thoughts about what prompted you to get back in the county council seat after um, – Kathy Burkett's untimely death, and um, kind of what's your assessment so far of what you've seen? Well, this is um, not something that I went into with um, a large list of things to accomplish. I thought St. Louis County needed someone who would be a, a good steward of the taxpayer dollar that would help run the county in a fair and responsible way, and I could um, do this um, uh, do this job and hold this position and, and help out the county without giving up my day job, which I, I enjoy a great deal. Now, you, 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 again, this was not something that you were actively seeking. It was kind of a situation that was, that was mired in a little bit of, of sadness and tragedy. When, when Councilwoman Burkett passed away, was this something that people came up and asked you to run for? Or was this something that you thought, you know, this is my way of giving back and continuing on her legacy, essentially? Well, Kathy always talked to me about running when she retired and um, probably wouldn't have run for another term, but none of us expected her to, to become ill. This ha happened very quickly, mm -hmm. um, and she, um, she really um, 
really struggled uh, with, with her cancer. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I've been covering the county council now for about three and a half years, and um, it is with a lot of sadness that she passed away because even though I think she was one of the more combative members of the council, she was very easy to deal with as a reporter, and obviously you never want to see somebody go through a disease like that in public as she was going through. So well, she's think, very much missed. I think there was some concern among some of the local Democrats that um, in a special election this particular seat could be less predictable. And um, I think they wanted somebody that could, um, that they had confidence in that could do a good job, but also could win a special election. Why do Democrats traditionally do so lousy in special elections or even off presidential years, just like this last fall? I mean, this the, the state's a purple state anyway, but it seems like in the off presidential years, the Democrats really get hammered. You know, 2010, 2014 being the two most recent i mean just in general well it's it's about turnout the uh people are most likely to vote for a democratic candidate um don't always vote in midterm elections if you look at the profile of a midterm voter and the profile of an election year voter they'll have very different interests and concerns so how did you get democrats to turn out that's my point remember his election was in was in august yes but it but it was special election still well august tends to still be skewed well, we, I ran a very aggressive campaign and um, you know, communicated very um, clearly with the voters about what, what I was for. I think the, the turnout issue in, in my special election, because it was also on the August primary ballot, really was the county executive race. Right. I think that drove turnout more than anything. How did, did, did that affect you in any way, plus or minus, do you think? Well, I think it was a wash. Um, I had assumed early on, and most folks did, that it would help me because it would bring more Democrats out because of a contested primary. But what we actually saw were a lot of Republicans taking a Democratic primary ballot to vote for um, Steve Stinger, but then um, uh, keeping their partisan preference in the um, in the contested general election, which was my special election, which was also on the same ballot. Yeah, that's what I heard. Now- yeah. Now, one of the things that kind of became a big thing on the council before you were there was whether the council person, and there were seven council members, whether they aligned with the then county executive, Charlie Dooley, or they aligned with Stanger. Um, I, I don't really, this is one of the things I can't really wrap my head around. I didn't really ever get a sense of which side you were on in that sense, because I don't know if you actively endorsed either candidate, and you kind of are coming in as essentially your own person. What was kind of your your sense before you got on the council, what the dynamics of the council were, um, especially divided between those two factions? And what do you hope to to bring now that that the councilman Stanger has now become county executive Stanger, essentially? Well, I I didn't endorse anyone in that primary. Um, And after the primary is over, I did work uh, pretty hard for Steve. I thought he would do a good job, and I think he will do a good job. I think he's trying to bridge the differences in our community and he's he's trying to um, take the county in the right direction and i have confidence in him yeah how do you think he's done in his first couple of weeks so far he's made a lot of good decisions he's reached across the aisle to uh appoint um a couple of folks that had um republican ties into significant positions of leadership he's surrounded himself with some good people and he's making some changes in the department of transportation to recognize non uh road and car transportation uh, methods, and, and I think he's 
he's making some good decisions. So, he's only been in the office uh, three weeks. So from my understanding, the only person on the council who's not enamored with Stenger might be Hazel Irby. Otherwise, it seems like everybody on the council is pretty happy with them. Is that kind of your understanding, too? Well, I think um, Steve and Hazel are, are working on their relationship, and I think they'll find over time that they have more goals that are in common than not. Yeah, the reason I mention that is, you know, he effectively has a six to one de facto majority on the council until the two Republicans or potentially the three Republicans, depending on what happens in the sixth district race, you know, split off from him, which is a very powerful position to have for an executive. So, well, these things change. I mean, coalitions on on uh, uh, councils and, and in government change depending on the Absolutely. issues. And, and we never saw um, we never expected Ferguson coming. It wasn't an issue when I ran for office. And and uh, here it is, and, and now we, we have to Yeah, that was going to be my next question, because when you were sworn in was right around the time Michael Brown was shot and killed, and you were sitting through some of the most tumultuous council meetings, probably in recent memory. Um, you can go back in our archives and check. But, you know, what was kind of your, your feeling from those meetings, and what do you think the council needs to do, um, given their admittingly limited power over things, to move St. Louis County forward after that? Well, there's a lot of things that the entire community community can do. I think the council um, does have a, a role to play. My initial assessment was this is a, a terrible tragedy. This was uh, an interaction between a police officer and uh, a young man that, that uh, went bad from the first moment. And um, the protesters that come to our meetings are, are very sincere. They feel strongly in their position, and they have some um, legitimate complaints that we have to listen to and understand. But as we move forward with our, our uh, police department, I think you'll see a little bit of a different approach. I think you'll see a little um, softer hand when we're uh, interacting with, uh, um, with individuals and citizens in the community. Um, of course, our police officers are going to have body cameras. I think that makes everyone involved in an interaction um, you know, perform at the, at the top of their game in their best behavior. What was your assessment of the uh, Chief Belmar's performance during Ferguson because he was much criticized for his performance well it's um it's easy to Monday morning quarterback the events that happened um, you know people involved in decision-making positions were criticized for being too heavy-handed and then not heavy-handed enough and uh, I think that you have to expect someone to make the best decision they can with the information they have at that moment and not hold them to a higher standard. So at this point, is there anything particular that you think the council can or should do regarding Ferguson, or do you see other issues as really taking a bigger role? Well, I think we need to um, support um, our state government and uh, any other private entities to try and create better opportunities for the citizens at Ferguson. We need to refocus economic development opportunities there. We need to address um, the racial tension that exists in St. Louis County, which is very real. And I, I think that starts with um, a police officer in, uh, interacting with an individual, but it also starts at the neighborhood level. It starts with individuals um, communicating with each other and trying to understand how someone else feels when, they, um, when they're in a different position or have a different perspective. So, so what are the things that the council can do to improve the economic situation in a place like Ferguson and other places in North St. Louis County? Well, I think the word is out that we're looking for economic development opportunities 
and we're going to focus our resources to the best of our ability to projects in North County that uh, bring jobs. And I think you've seen some of that, um, you know, over the over the past couple of months. We've we've had some announcements. One thing I wanted to make sure we didn't forget is the landfill, the infamous. Yeah. Bridgeton slash landfill is uh, in your district. And also uh, Coldwater Creek yes. is in your district, which are separate issues, but they both are in this umbrella of environmental right. controversy. Well, they're right. connected. They're right. Well, because they all stem from the 1970s, and I was around then, uh, when uh, some of the waste from World War II the, ended up in these landfills, and there was controversy even then. That's almost 40 years ago. When they were talking about what to do with it. So tell me kind of what about what the situation is and kind of how you, what your involvement is. Well, there were three places in the country that really were responsible for, for um, producing all the weapons-grade nuclear material, Correct. and St. Louis was one of them. Correct. And uh, when the war is over and the nuclear material is left over and um, there was some uh, discussion about the opportunity to recycle some of that for, for energy production, uh, in the meantime, I don't think uh, the uh, the danger of uh, of the material was fully understood, and it just kind of sat around. It sat around a big pile up at the airport, and and um, washed into Coldwater Creek. It eventually was cleaned up uh, through an effort of our congressional delegation in the 90s. It, it was a long process, yes, but it was initiated that. back in the 90s, and uh, and some of it ended up in in Westlake Landfill, which is separate from Bridgeton Landfill. But it's next to it. It's next to it. So there's um, uh, what's called a a smoldering event, a subsurface smoldering event is the language that's used to describe uh, a chemical reaction that is essentially a fire that's yeah, underground. underground. right. So it's, um, we, we have an underground fire that's um, moving towards the material that we know is, is um, radioactive waste, and, and we're concerned about what that means if the fire meets the waste. And, and there's a lot of discussion about um, how to prevent that from happening. Um, there's also some concern that there's some um, radioactive uh, material that's entered into some of the groundwater that's uh, being monitored at the site, and uh, the EPA is watching that very closely as well. Now, they they built a barrier. They tried to build a barrier between the two landfills to try to keep the— originally the fire was going burning away from the uh, radioactive waste, but now, I mean, at least the last I heard, they're concerned that part of it is moving forward, but they did— have this barrier here. From your perspective, do you think there's enough that's being done to try to prevent some sort of a uh, meeting of the fire and the radioactive waste? Well, from my perspective, I think the, the EPA could move much more quickly um, in the testing of the water, the testing of the location of the radioactive material. There's some concern now that, that um, the radioactive waste was either originally placed without anyone's knowledge outside of the Westlake landfill, or some of the material has migrated through the groundwater through some other mechanism outside of that area. So where we build this this barrier between the fire and the and the landfill that has radioactive waste depends on where the radioactive waste actually is. And the EPA announced um, a week or so ago that they're going to do more testing to try and uh, more precisely locate where that is. Now this is news that kind of broke today, and I, if you don't have a reaction to it we can always uh move on to something else but apparently the epa has said there and this is from our colleague Dury buscarin of st louis public radio that there is nothing distinctive about the air quality near west lake landfill where the fire is smoldering underground and that while the 
odors are intolerable, they don't pose a, quote, unacceptable risk to human health. That's from the EPA director. I don't know if you've heard about that, but it, it just kind of asked more broadly, are you kind of unsatisfied with how the EPA has kind of handled these well, situations? Well, because they've been taking that stand, because I was covering that story initially a couple years ago when it first broke, and they've been saying that more or less for two years, even with they do a survey or some sort of measurement, and then they come out and say the same thing. Well, if, if sulfur dioxide was innocuous, harmless, colorless, odorless gas, then we wouldn't have litigation uh, from the residents um, against uh, Republican, and Republican wouldn't have settled that litigation. If the stench is harmless and the odor is harmless, then, then why is there litigation and why is that litigation, at least some of it, uh, has been settled? I think the EPA has uh, missed the mark on that one. Yeah, and just for our listeners so they know, Republic is the parent company that owns the landfills. Yeah, and unfortunately they inherited um, yeah. this mess, and now they're one of the responsible parties uh, that, that have to help pay for it. But here's my question on this. It seems like, I, I, it seems like this is a state and federal situation, not necessarily the county, because the county, does, if, correct me if I'm wrong, Joe or, or Councilman, but the county doesn't have jurisdiction over this situation. It's the state and the feds, right? Primarily correct. So what can the county really do besides pass resolutions saying that they want those two entities to do something, essentially? Well, I think if, uh, if the county government um, expresses their concern to our congressional delegation that federal regulators have um, um, missed the boat on their approach to this, um, this problem in Westlake or Coldwater Creek, I would um, expect our uh, federal delegation to respond very quickly. Because that was that. what I was thinking. I was actually talking with Ed Smith of, um, I guess, the, I don't remember what Well, it's an energy advocate. Yeah, it's yeah. an advocacy group, environmental advocacy Sorry, I'm advocacy being very group. stumbly today. But he, I, I basically came up with the logical conclusion that if you can get someone like Senator McCaskill and Senator Blunt to be very much on the EPA's case about this, they're probably going to listen pretty carefully because they both have pretty stringent controls over the EPA's funding or projects that they want to do. Have you gotten a sense of whether either of those two officials are engaged about this yet? Well, I, I think they're engaged. They send representatives to just about every meeting um, that we have with, uh, you know, with uh, concerned citizens in the community and, and EPA officials. And, and I, I think they're engaged. I, I think they can still turn up the heat a little bit. We're trying to give uh, the EPA a little bit of rope to do the right thing here, but certainly when they, um, you know, make statements like the, the noxious gases are, um, are not a health risk, it, it kind of makes you wonder. And by the way, Ed Smith is with the Missouri Coalition for the Environment. I apologize for mispronouncing the title of his organization. It's my, my son kept me up all night long. So, <laughs> so beyond... Ferguson and the Bridgeton landfill. I mean, what, do you, what are the things that you're hoping the council will spend their time on this year? Well, I'm interested in um, the opportunity to streamline the Department of Health. I've met with with uh, Dr. Khan, who is the interim director for the Department of Health, and we've uh, been brainstorming a little bit and, and started a process of listening to anyone who has suggestions on how to um, improve the delivery of care and the delivery of services through the Department of Health and to do it more efficiently. I guess what I would have to imagine the county's Department of Health has to be one of the largest county health agencies in the state. I think it is. 
So as far as the county health agency, it is. And obviously, it was kind of in the in the mainstream news for potentially the wrong reasons. But do you think that um, what do you what 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 specific things would you want to see changed about that particular agency? One of the things that the county health department is is responsible for is public health, and one of the things that we're talking about is to try and um, um, perform some sort of cohort study to uh, establish um, the connection or the, the lack of connection between the higher incidences of rare forms of cancer amongst the folks that uh, live or grew up along Coldwater Creek in, in those zip codes and, and try and uh, see if there's a, a relationship between that, um, that area and uh, the higher incidences of, of rare cancers. And the way we do that study is, is um, try and find a similar group of uh, folks demographically who weren't exposed to that geographic area. And that's the, the county health department that's going to do that, not the state health the department. The county health right? department is, is working on that now. Now, um, do you believe that uh, we asked this to our, our, our other councilman guests last week, Councilman Harder, do you expect the issue of how to pay for this new Ram Stadium to come before the council? And kind of what's your take on that situation early on? Well, I'll try and keep an open mind until the information is presented in an organized fashion. I've uh, read about it in the paper, and uh, I guess, like most folks, I would have a great deal of hesitation about trying to raise taxes to fund a stadium, but, you know, St. Louis is, uh, is an NFL town, and we like to keep a team here, so I'm interested in seeing their proposal. Obviously, it's very early in the stages, so we'll have to see right. what sort of public financing comes down the pike there. All right. I'm going to close this out here. You can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at at CSMcDaniel. Jason, you can be followed on Twitter. Jay Rosenbaum. And Joe? At Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. I have some bad news. And the councilman. Not on Twitter. No. Nope. Jason's shaking his head. All right. My apologies to your listeners. <laughs> but, yeah. Do you have a Facebook page? I do have a Facebook okay, page. All right. You can that. you can you can probably Google them. Two on, weeks and, in a row, them. we have guests with no Twitter accounts. <laughs> I think maybe uh, we're going in the direction of Twitter just being cast aside. Maybe Twitter's <laughs> not cool anymore. Who knows? All right. Well, we'll be back next week. Until then, so long. So, so long. So long. <laughs>